If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. How high did unemployment rates soar in the Great Depression? What were Hoovervilles? And how can the roots of the US civil rights movement be traced back to the 1930s? For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're looking back at the Great Depression. Our section editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to the historian David M. Kennedy, who answered listener questions and popular online search queries relating to the devastating economic crash. So our first question today, David, is a top online search query, which is, when was the Great Depression? Well, the Great Depression is usually dated to the decade of the 1930s. Some people date its outset from the crash of the American stock market in 1929. That's probably not an accurate dating. But essentially, the decade of the 1930s is thought to be the era of the so-called Great Depression. And what caused it? What caused the Great Depression is an issue that has vexed economic historians and policymakers for the better part of the last century. 
And the fact is, there is it's a singularity, a black swan event, and there is no consensus amongst uh, historians is exactly what caused it. I think the best single succinct explanation is to be found in the memoir of um, Herbert Hoover, the American president when the Depression started. And he said, I'm not quoting him exactly, but pretty close, he said, the deepest roots of the Great Depression of the 1930s lay in the Great War of 1914 to 1918. I see. And we have had some questions about the stock market crash. How does that relate to the Great Depression? Stock market crash is a very dramatic event. Uh, 19, the fall of 1929, the stock market in the United States lost in a matter of hours 16, 17% of its value and went on down from there. It lost over 50% of its value over the next few years. But the stock market crash is better understood as a symptom of a lot of structural economic dislocations than as the cause of the Great Depression, despite the fact that many narrative histories introduce the Great Depression with the stock market crash. But the consensus amongst most people who study this closely is that the, the, the stock market crash did, did not have much of a causative effect on creating the event we know as the Great Depression. And you said it was a very dramatic episode. We have a question from Han Nitz on Instagram who says, how quickly did the stock market crash impact daily life? Well, as a matter of fact, the stock market crash in 1929 in this country, the United States, did not immediately affect uh, daily life. Um, the best estimate we have is that uh, only about 2.5%, repeat that, 2.5% of American households own stock as of 1929. So the effects on the banking system and the credit system turned out over time to be quite severe. But the immediate effects were almost zero in the average American household. And one final stock market crash-related question. What was Black Tuesday? Black Tuesday was one of the several days that saw these sickening uh, evaporations of values on the American stock exchanges. Uh, that was October 29th. Um, uh, 1929, when the mar market lost about 12% of its value in one day. Uh, and things kept going down from there. And he here's an interesting factoid about all this. <clears throat> the stock market, the United States stock market, did not regain its 1929 pre-crash levels until 1954. It took 25 years to recover those values. That's incredible. And next up, we have a question from MiniT26, who asked on Instagram, did anyone predict the Great Depression? Well, there were, again, people are always predicting all kinds of things. And there were always a few doomsayers to the 1920s that said things are pretty rotten and they're only going to get worse. So, yes, if you go back and ransack in the historical record, you can find people who predicted something like the Great Depression. But virtually no one, to my knowledge, who predicted the depth and, and velocity and duration of the Depression. It was really an absolutely singular event. And in one of your earlier answers, you mentioned Herbert Hoover, but who else was president during the Great Depression? Well, in the United States, uh, Herbert Hoover was the man who presided over the onset of the Depression. And the severity of the Depression was the principal reason why he was no longer president after the election of 1932 and Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president for the rest of the decade of the 1930s and well into the 1940s until the conclusion, almost the conclusion of World War II. And how did the two presidents differ in their responses to the Great Depression? Well, they differed in all kinds of ways, characterologically, in terms of their formation as adult persons. Hoover had been primarily a businessman, though with some career in appointive public office. Franklin Roosevelt had been an elected politician for much of his adult life. 
Um, so they had different experience in the political arena and the business arenas. Uh, Hoover was much more of an orthodox thinker, uh, less able to think outside the box or to think freshly in the face of a new and unprecedented challenge. And he was especially enthralled to a lot of orthodoxy about balanced budgets and the, uh, the virtue of very small government and laissez-faire policies. Roosevelt was much more willing to experiment, uh, to think of brand new solutions to the Depression and to the character of American life more broadly than Herbert Hoover was really capable of. And we have another question about Herbert Hoover. This is from The Golden from Golden, who asked on Instagram, to what extent was Herbert Hoover responsible for how bad the Depression ultimately became? Well, again, in the household in which I grew up as a boy, uh, the Great Depression was known as the Hoover Depression. And there were all kinds of ways that was signified. People would pull out their empty pockets, uh, trouser pockets, those were called Hoover flags, by way of trying to remind everybody Hoover caused it all. That's a grossly exaggerated view of what happened. It's very hard to pin uh, responsibility for the onset or the causes of the Great Depression on Herbert Hoover. You can responsibly, I think, um, hold him responsible for not doing more, uh, not, not, not more effectively counterpunching to the crisis when it hit. On the other hand, <laughs> He tried to do some uh, pretty vigorous things, but he was prevented by Democratic majority. He was a Republican. He was prevented by Democratic majorities in the Congress of the United States. So he was blocked in a lot of things that he wanted to do. And he was limited, especially in the first two years of the Depression, by not understanding, as virtually nobody understood, just how massive this crisis was going to be and how swiftly it was going to get even worse. He gave his name to Hoover Flags and he also gave his name to Hoovervilles. What are Hoovervilles? Hoovervilles were essentially the camps of unemployed and homeless people. Sometimes you might describe them as homeless camps. Um, in my hometown of Seattle, there's a very famous photograph that has circulated for years of a Hooverville down at the, in the industrial south end of the city of Seattle. But they sprang up in, many, in and around many American cities where people lived in tar paper and cardboard shacks and uh, corrugated iron roofs, uh, tin roofs. And uh, they were where people who had no place else to live gathered and tried to do for themselves the best they could. And how did the Great Depression change the role of government in America? Well, the, the, the Depression itself um, didn't directly change the role of government, but Franklin Roosevelt's administration, known to American students of this matter as the New Deal, a phrase that Roosevelt used in his acceptance speech when he accepted the Democratic nomination in 1932. <clears throat> the New Deal was a set of programs that Franklin Roosevelt uh, put in place, which did significantly change the landscape of American life and institutions. Um, in very particular ways that I'm happy to talk about in more detail, if you like. Mm, definitely. Can you tell us some more? Well, the, the, the summary word, the one word that sums up the essence of the New Deal's changes is the word security. And in fact, that word appears in the title of what is to this day probably the single most famous and consequential piece of legislation that came out of the New Deal, the Social Security Act of 1935. Um, which uh, provided both for uh, government-sponsored uh, old-age pensions and, sometimes forgotten, Title II of the Social Security Act for the first time uh, put the federal government in the business of incentivizing the states to put in place unemployment insurance programs. There was no, nothing like this before of any consequence whatsoever. 
But you could extend the argument that the basic thrust of the New Deal was to make life less risky, to reduce risk in all kinds of ways. Social Security Act is an obvious example. It made old age less risky. It made the consequences of unemployment less risky, less consequential, uh, by providing some income buffer for people who went unemployed for a certain period of time. But other things that came out of the New Deal also had this essential logic of making life more secure and less risky. Again, for example, home purchasing, home mortgage lending. The New Deal put in place something called the Federal Housing Authority, which exists to this day, which is an insurance program for lenders who want to lend to people who want to buy, purchase houses. So we went from about a 35 or 40% homeowner society in the, up, in the 19, up through the 1920s to a majority homeownership society by 1960. So in a single generation, we increased the incidence of homeownership in this society by a factor of two. And that owes largely to the way that the New Deal made home mortgage lending less risky and therefore less expensive uh, than it had been before. So across the board, you can go through all kinds of sectors of American life, old age, unemployment, housing policy, banking policy, stock exchanges, and throughout the, the, the light motif, the the theme that unites all these reforms is taking the risk out of various aspects of American life. And moving on now from politics and policy to economic questions, what was the unemployment rate during the Great Depression? Well, at the bottom, the worst moment of the Great Depression, that's late 32, early 33, we think the unemployment rate was about 25%. That's about 13 million workers were unemployed at just about the time that Franklin Roosevelt took office. And in fact, if we try to understand those numbers through the lens of our own time, uh, we actually end up underestimating the impact of unemployment for a very simple reason that has to do with the demography of the workforce. There were very, very few, almost no employed married women in the workforce as of 1929. The, the rate is single digit, seven or eight percent of married women were employed. And that was just a aspect of culture, the legacy practice that had come down from the 19th century. Today, over 50% of married women are employed for wages in the marketplace. So that today, a 25% unemployment rate, God forbid that should happen again, would not necessarily translate into a comparable percentage of households that were had, had no employed member. But in 1929, 30, 31, 32, 25% unemployment rate meant essentially about 23 or 4% of all households all families had no employed member. Wouldn't mean the same thing today. So it's it really takes a leap of the historical imagination, I think, for people like all of us who've been um, raised in the post-World War II era, especially in the Western world, in pretty comfortable economic circumstances to understand what it would have been like in 1932-33 when there were no unemployment insurance programs to speak of, there was no old age pension to speak of, and when the sole breadwinner in the family goes unemployed, the human misery toll of all that was just tremendous. And though the New Deal did put people back to work to a certain degree, it never fully knocked out the Depression. The unemployment rate for the rest of the decade after 1933 averages 17% per year, which again are rates that today we would regard as economically intolerable and politically catastrophic. And our next question is another popular online search query. Why did the banks fail during the Great Depression and how many failed? Well, banks did not fail everywhere, but they failed spectacularly in the United States. 
there were, thanks to banking reforms that were about 100 years old by the 1930s, dating back to the time of President Andrew Jackson in the 1830s, there were about 25,000 banks in the United States. And many of them were in banking parlance what are called unitary institutions. They were one location, maybe the only bank in a given county somewhere in an agricultural district in the Midwest, let's say, dependent for their viability on the economy of that county. And if it got in trouble, there went the bank. So we had a, something in the, approaching the order of 10,000 bank failures out of the 25,000 in the United States, most of them in the period 1931 to 33. Canada, next door to us, population roughly 10% of our size. Uh, if Canada had had the same banking structure, um, 10% of its banks would have failed. The fact is Canada at that time had just five banks, five, <laughs> and none of them failed, not one. Uh, if they'd had our banking structure, they would have had 2,500 banks, <laughs> 10% of ours, and presumably a lot of them would have failed. So it's a lesson in how banking systems are fragile and, and volatile and vulnerable to the extent that they are distributed in the way ours was. When they're more centralized, when there are fewer, bigger, resilient institutions, banking systems can absorb shocks even on the scale of the Great Depression. But ours did not. And on the flip side, who made money during the Great Depression? Well, the short answer to that question is not many people. Um, even people who remained employed uh, often saw their wages cut. In fact, there are estimates that the not simply the unemployment rate, but what's called the underemployment rate, which is the sum of those who are unemployed and those whose working hours or wages were cut back. So it's a measure of underutilized human resource, you might say. Uh, the best estimates we have of that is about 50% of all uh, human resources were either unutilized altogether, that's unemployed, or underutilized due to shorter working hours or reduced days or whatever. So, the, again, the national income in the United States was cut in half between 1929 and 1933. There was 50% less income in the aggregate in all American households over the space of just three or four years. Next up, we have a question from Danielle who asked us on Twitter, for the few businesses that were profitable during the crisis, what made them successful? Well, to repeat, there were very few that were profitable. Uh, there, there were some banks, notably the Bank of America, which at that time was based in California, was the creation of an Italian immigrant by the name of A.P. Giannini. Um, that bank did quite well in the Depression by taking a lot of risks uh, and uh, acquiring assets that were distressed and so on. So there are little pockets of success here and there. But by and large, um, nobody was making much uh, uh, in the Depression. And again, there are estimates that the under, if, if investment in new plant and new products and so on, if the rate of investment that it had obtained in the first three decades from 1900 to 1930, roughly, if that rate had held constant through the 1930s, which it did not, but if we use that as the benchmark line, that projected constant rate of investment, we think that there was something like three years, accumulatively three years worth of national production that was lost that would otherwise have been produced if production and investment had maintained its rate. So it's it's almost impossible for us, I think, I shouldn't say almost impossible, but very difficult to get our heads around the scale of this calamity, 
its depth and how long it lasted. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is a thought experiment, and I'll cast it in British terms to make it intelligible to your audience. But if I'm correct, Wembley Stadium holds about 100,000 spectators. Is that about right? All right, so imagine this. Imagine there's a stadium on the scale of Wembley. It's in our country, it would probably be the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, football stadium. Also has about 100,000 capacity. So imagine in um, the first Saturday of the year 1930, in January, uh, an event is held in the Rose Bowl or Wembley Stadium size venue. And 100,000 people are invited to come. The admission is free, but the condition of being there is you have to be an employed person, which means it's almost all men. So they come, they watch the sporting event or whatever, and then an announcement comes over the loudspeaker that every single person in this stadium today has just lost his, or in some few cases, her job. And as they leave the stadium, one out of every four is given a piece of paper that says, not only have you lost your job, you will not have wage employment again for at least four years. And the second Saturday, January 1930, that's repeated. And again, the third Saturday. And it turns out that event, this is a thought experiment now, it's not a literal event, is repeated every single Saturday throughout the year of 1930, 1931, 1932. To get to the total of 13 million unemployed, it brings you down just about to January 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt is about to take office. Now, this is a thought exercise and didn't happen this way, but the numbers I've just given you are faithful to the overall level of unemployment and the speed with which it happened and the length of time in which people were unemployed. My own father went unemployed in 1931, and to the best of my knowledge, family history is a little gauzy about all this, but to the best of my knowledge, he did not have another wage job, employment, until 1937. That is a very useful thought experiment. It really brings it home. Um, our next question is, what did struggling businesses do to try and remain open during the Great Depression? Well, they did the obvious thing that businesses do before, during, and after the Great Depression. They tried to cut costs. So that meant unemploying people. <laughs> That's the principal way that, um, that companies could try to reduce their expenditures. Um, some tried discounting product sales so that uh, even strapped consumers might be able to buy the product, but that there was not much viability in that strategy because most people who were affected by the depression, which is most people, um, simply didn't have the means to buy much of anything. So unemployment is a direct result of individual employers trying to stay alive. And thinking specifically about farming now, we have a question from AgroBiodiverse from Twitter, which is, what were the effects of the Great Depression on agriculture? Did it encourage people to go back to farming or push them away from it? No, you again, it's, it's plausible and kind of intuitive. You might think, well, people would leave the city and go back to the countryside and be subsistence farmers in the face of a crisis like this. And some of that did happen. Uh, but that's been hugely exaggerated in a lot of our folklore. Uh, and in fact, most urban dwellers were immigrants who didn't know much of, or many of them were recent immigrants who knew nothing about farming. So it really wasn't a plausible strategy for them. But there's another item to be considered here. And that is um, in American agricultural districts, American farmers had been living, you'll forgive the metaphor here, very high on the hog since about 1914. 
uh, when World War I broke out and worldwide agricultural and commodity markets collapsed, except in the United States. And American farmers invested heavily in new equipment like tractors and brought marginal land into production. Uh, in the, during the time of the Great War of 1914 to 1918 and fed the world to a greater degree than they had uh, before 1914. But they took on a lot of debt to do that. And then world markets restabilized, 1919, 1920, and American farmers found themselves with an overhang of debt and with a lot of the markets they'd been enjoying for the preceding four, five, six years now no longer accessible to them. And the agricultural sector in the United States, the farming sector, went into depression beginning around 1920 or 21. So what we call the Great Depression of the 1930s, in a sense, was old news in the American countryside when it happened, because the agricultural sector had been in trouble for a decade already. So what's the first thing that Herbert Hoover does when he uh, enters the White House in 1929? The very first, this is before the Great Depression, so-called, anybody was using that term or anything like it had happened, months before the stock market crash. The very first thing he does, he calls an emergency emergency session of the American Congress. Uh, it's a prerogative that the executive has, is to convene the Congress on an emergency basis. A very unusual step, doesn't happen very often. But he called the Congress into an emergency session in the spring of 1929, to pass legislation to aid farmers. And he creates a new institution called the Farm Adjustment Board to put the federal government in the business of buying crops to make it uh, possible for farmers to stay in business. This is a set of reforms usually associated with the New Deal, but in fact, Herbert Hoover started it. And it's a reminder to us that at that time, Hoover, among many others, thought the, the most, the sickest sector of the American economy was the agricultural sector. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Even while people were grubbing through garbage cans in big cities looking for something to eat, at the exact same time, mules and horses were plowing up cornfields and potato fields and so on around the country in order to raise agricultural prices. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And in the face of such financial hardship and such high rates of unemployment, how did people survive the Great Depression? Well, in all kinds of uh, resilient ways. Um, many did not. Uh, the suicide rate through the 1930s is, is spikes. Family formation uh, is depressed. People have fewer children. They got married at lower rates. This is all statistically demonstrable. I mean, it, kind of the normal core human activities of getting married, having children, and so on, all that slows down rather measurably in the Great Depression. Um, my own parents, um, my father was working in a mining camp in the North Cascade Mountains in Washington State when he went unemployed in 1931. And for reasons that are still opaque to me, that I, I just I family never talked about it. They were embarrassed, uh, humiliated about it. Uh, but they lived there. My mother and father lived in that mining camp. After the mine shut down and the camp became a ghost town, it was nearly 30 miles from a cleared road in the winter, and there were no mechanized means to get out to the cleared road. They had to snowshoe or ski 30 miles, two-day trip to get to a cleared road. They lived there for two or three years, virtually by themselves, nobody else there in a cabin. And how they survived, I don't know. They eventually made their way to Seattle, where I was eventually born. And they lived in the basement of a Methodist church, and they got their room and board, no cash income, just a, they got their a room in the basement, and they got something to eat in return for working on a soup line where they dispensed food to other unemployed and indigent uh, people. My father did tell me at one point, I believe the year was 1936, but I could be off a year or two by the year, uh, his total income for that year was $11.50. And he got $10 for sponsoring an immigrant through the naturalization process. So some government agency paid him that 10 bucks. And he got $1.50 for washing and waxing some guy's car. So that was his total income for the year. So that's how he did it. <laughs> and other people were comparably wretched but resilient and somehow kept it going. Moved in with relatives. Um, made do with very, very little. And that whole, that generation that survived the Depression, uh, their behavior cast a shadow over the uh, succeeding generations. And the idea that you should, you, 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 could live extravagantly and spend now and hope for something better to happen in the future is so alien to them. Again, in my family, for example, my father, over the course of his lifetime, owned exactly four cars, four automobiles. My father was born in 1896. After World War II, he owned two more cars. He thought having a radio in the car was an extravagance, so he never had a radio in the car. Um, and he thought a heater in the car, Seattle can get pretty cold where he lived, 
a heater was just a barely tolerable amenity in the automobile. And this is part of the legacy of the impact the Depression had on him. You don't spend one extra penny if you can avoid it. The doorknobs in our house when I was growing up, every doorknob was was in this festooned with rubber bands that he saved from every rubber band that came to the house. He never threw it out. And again, that's just that that kind of legacy or uh, effect on people's behavior was just obvious in that post-war generation. That's incredible. And our next question is: Were minorities at a disadvantage during the Great Depression? The short answer to that is yes. Uh, minorities, as in so many cases, bear the greatest uh, impact and burden of these kinds of society-wide catastrophes. So yeah, the unemployment rate amongst black Americans, for example, was almost double that amongst uh, white Americans. And it also happened, again, due to historical circumstance, when the Depression hit, most uh, African Americans um, lived in the American South, in the 11 states of the 19th century Civil War era Confederacy. And the South was still the most agricultural sector in the United States. So black Americans had the great misfortune when the Depression happened to be living in the least prosperous, most agriculture and most oppressive, racially oppressive part of the United States. So they they had a particularly hard time. Uh, many of the big immigrant communities that had arrived a, approximately a generation earlier, around the two decades around 1900 before and after, were still also mostly minority and marginal communities, and they suffered particularly badly. Many of them were in low-skill or unskilled industrial employment, some of the first people to go unemployed. So yeah, minority communities in general uh, were in pretty tough shape. Um, However, uh, the Roosevelt administration took several, in the New Deal period, took several measures to reach out both to immigrant communities and to African-American communities. Uh, they weren't terribly effective, but they, a lot of people would argue that the beginnings of the civil rights movement of the 1960s in this country really can be traced back to initiatives that the New Deal took in the 1930s. Uh, for example, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority is a New Deal creation. It's a big federal program to uh, put dams on the Tennessee River system in the American Southeast um, and to sell cheap hydroelectric power into the region by way of trying to jumpstart its industrialization and modernization. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, most prominent aides, Andrew Young, the Carter administration, he later became the ambassador of the United Nations, former mayor of Atlanta, African-American. Uh, he once said that the origins of the civil rights movement in the 1960s are in the Tennessee Valley Authority um, Act of the 1930s, by which he meant the Tennessee Valley Authority undertaking or initiative was the first time since Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s when the federal government did anything meaningful to try to improve the conditions of everybody in the American South, including black Americans. Another example, the three Republican administrations before the New Deal, that's Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, the three of them together, all three of those, appointed exactly eight Roman Catholics to the federal judiciary, to the federal, as federal judges. Eight over a 10 or 12 year period. 
Many uh, immigrant communities were Roman Catholic at that time. The Roosevelt administration, in its first two terms, an eight-year period, appointed over 50 Roman Catholics to the federal bench. Again, an obvious political move to try to um, bring those communities into the mainstream of American life, and not least of all, to attach their loyalties to the Democratic Party, where they stayed for another generation or two until essentially the late 1960s. And our next question comes from Dr. Nance 16, who asked on Instagram, how did the Great Depression affect Native Americans? Uh, That's, again, another complicated history. Uh, The New Deal, there is a piece of New Deal legislation um, enacted, if I remember correctly, in 1934, I might be off by a year, uh, sometimes called the Indian New Deal. Um, And it, it had the effect of reversing a policy that had been in place since the 1880s, a policy of forced assimilation of Native Americans uh, into American life, uh, a policy that has its own complicated history, um, including taking Native American children away from their parental parental homes and putting them in boarding schools elsewhere and trying to um, inculcate them in what was called the white man's way. The um, the presiding officer over one of the most famous of these schools, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, his motto was, we must kill the Indian to save the man. In other words, you have to drive Native American culture out of the person, equip that person to make his or her way in the broader society. Again, a very controversial policy is another topic for another day. But that policy is reversed in the so-called Indian New Deal. And the federal government, Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is the federal government's chief agency respecting Native Americans still to this day, instead said, now our chief aim will be to to reinvigorate and restore Native cultures, give Native American people more say over their own lives, improve quality of life on the reservations around the country where many Native Americans lived. So it was a reversal of policy. And tonally, you might say, it, uh, it, it was quite consequential, but practically not so much so because the resources weren't put behind it to really make it meaningful. So Native American life remains pretty marginal down into the 1970s when something called the American Indian Movement or AIM um, is a grassroots Native American movement that works to improve Native American life really comes onto the scene. But at least in term, at the level of concept, the New Deal tried to do something to be to, to better honor uh, Native American traditions and preserve and enhance them. And what impact did the Great Depression have on women? Well, again, remember, first of all, that relatively few women were in the workforce, married women especially. The typical American woman in the 1920s, if she worked at all, ever, and only about 20% of American women ever did work for wages up through the 1920s. If she worked at all, she worked when she was single and young and then got married and did not work for wages again the rest of her life, nor ever intended to. Now, that all changes after World War II. Uh, but the, the Depression itself has a very faint impact on uh, women's employment uh, rates. That's, that's all a post-World War II phenomenon. However, there's something else to be said about this. This is somewhat less measurable, but nonetheless, I think, worth mentioning. There's what became a very famous study of the psychological impact of the Depression, written by, it turns out, a woman, a social psychologist named Mira Komarovsky. 
in a book published in 1940, the title of which is a reminder to us of something. The title is The Unemployed Man and His Family. And there is, the book is a result of in-depth interviews by Mira Komorowska and her team with families all over the country as to what was the psychological impact of the Depression. on Because the typical breadwinner in the household up until the Great Depression was, of course, the man in the household, um, the Depression robbed many men of that role. Either they went unemployed or they went on reduced employment. So their role in the family also changed. And the patriarchal authority, male authority in the household, the house, the fatherly role and the husbandly role was uh, degraded somewhat. And women often assumed more responsibility and authority and legitimacy or standing uh, in the households where they lived. So it's a subtle effect and difficult to measure with any precision. But Mira Komorowski's research suggests that in many households, something like that happened. So you might say, cycle. well, even while women were living in households that were economically and materially suffering because of the Depression, they were, perhaps paradoxically enough, improving their psychological standing within the household. And thinking about everyday life in the Great Depression, we've had a few questions in to do with food. So what did people eat during the Great Depression? And Katie's Table asked us on Instagram, what budget foods and recipes were popular at the time? Well, that's a good question that I can't answer with any precision. Um, it, it was a matter of very public discussion <clears throat> in the early New Deal, especially when the New Deal paid farmers to stop producing in order to raise agricultural prices and improve the lot of people in the countryside. So at, at, even while people were grubbing through garbage cans in big cities looking for something to eat, at the exact same time, mules and horses were plowing up cornfields and potato fields and so on around the country in order to raise agricultural prices. So it was a demonstration of the kind of crazy economics of the period and of economic thinking that even while people are starving or near starvation, we're destroying food. Why did some children stop going to school during the Great Depression? Well, again, I'm not sure that's an accurate statement. Perhaps some did, but high school gradua graduation rates actually went up in the Great Depression. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's in the decade of the 1930s that a, a, we get a majority of people in the relevant age bracket, roughly 18 to 22 or so, a majority who graduate from high school. Why? Because there were no jobs. So it made sense to stay in school. There was no reason to quit school early and go looking for work because there wasn't any. So again, um, I think of my own family as an example of this. My father had two brothers, both of whom were apprenticed at age 13. That was the end of their formal education. One was apprenticed to a pipe fitter and the other to a machinist. And my father was the first male in his family who was allowed to finish high school. Um, and he never finished, never went to college, but he finished high school. But he was the first male in his family. So in an earlier generation, young men especially were essentially incentivized to leave school, to start working, support their families, learn a trade. But in the Great Depression, there was no place to go. So people stayed in school uh, longer than they had before. And how did the Great Depression change American attitudes to welfare? Well, that's, again, an interesting question, especially for your, what I take as your audience in the UK, because welfare 
in my view, has a very peculiar uh, connotation in the United States. We, it's a prevailing cultural attitude here that welfare is something that poor people get and not others. Whereas the welfare state in the European and the UK context usually refers to something to which everybody has access. It's a more, more universal uh, right or, or program. We, generally speaking, historically haven't thought of it that way. So in the American context, uh, well, the origins of the modern welfare state, such as it is in this country, it's still much more limited. We don't have universal health care, for example. But the American welfare state, such as it is, yes, the roots of it can be traced back to the New Deal, especially in programs like Social Security, old age pensions, unemployment insurance, and what used to be called aid to families with dependent children. There's yet another title in the Social Security Act 1935 that um, gave special benefits to uh, families that were identified as living in poverty. So we have, I think, my own personal view is we have a very under-resourced and modest welfare state compared to a lot of the societies we usually compare ourselves with. But such as it is, it begins in the 1930s. And our next question is from Shane Batt, who asked on Twitter, we know about the Dust Bowl, but what were other effects of climate change during the Great Depression? And it might be worth just quickly explaining what the Dust Bowl is as well for any listeners who aren't sure. Well, the, the Dust Bowl refers to a geographic area. Um, it, it's essentially, if you look at an American map, it's where the so-called panhandles of the states of Oklahoma and Texas intersect. So it's in the American south-southwest, you might say, also extending in part into Arkansas. Um, and it, it was a place where, thanks to a legacy of very poor agricultural practices and weather, uh, we, there were these enormous dust storms in the 1930s that created dust clouds that reached all the way to New York City and Boston and Washington, D.C., thousands of miles away. Um, somebody quipped at the time that Lady Godiva could have ridden her horse down the streets of Manhattan, Manhattan, New York, one of these dust storms, and nobody would have seen her. Um, but they, they were one particular localized, you might say, uh, area of suffering and wretchedness in the Great Depression. It's just a kind of a coincidence that the Dust Bowl, so-called these, these big dust storms, happened at the moment of the Great Depression. The, the Depression didn't cause them, nor did they cause the Depression. But those areas were swiftly abandoned by thousands upon thousands of people who tried to make a living farming there. Many of them made their way westward toward California in particular, and there's, in the American context or the American literary canon, there's a, a to this day, a rather great novel by um, John Steinbeck called The Grapes of Wrath, which is a fictional account of one of these families leaving the Dust Bowl region and trying to make their way to California in the 1930s, uh, later made into a rather good movie with Henry Fonda and some other people. But it's still a very rewarding Read And even though it's fiction, as an historian, I can say it, it evokes very well what the human face of that particular um, part of the Depression was all about. And so far, we focused on the United States. But looking wider now, we've had some questions about how the Depression affected the rest of the world. So how did the Great Depression affect other countries? And from KB the Ginger on Instagram, did it affect everywhere in the world? Uh, very, very good question, I'm, and I'm glad that it came up because it allows me to make another important point, which is a point maybe more directed at an American audience. Uh, but there's a tendency in this country, in the United States, to think of the Depression as an all-American phenomenon 
that we caused it and we alone counterpunched to it. Any discussion of the depression in this country that starts out in that framework is bound to be misleading because it was a global phenomenon. Uh, and the two countries that were most affected by the depression on the index of deepest levels of unemployment and most loss of GDP, gross domestic product, were the United States and Germany. Um, very different answers to a very different political and social and cultural responses. Germany gets Hitler, United States gets Franklin Roosevelt, two very different political regimes. But the, the depression is a global phenomenon. And among the people who understood that pretty deeply and intuitively was Herbert Hoover. And he kept trying to work for international responses to the depression. He didn't get very far. And instead, most countries, again, given the political circumstances of the time, given the state of economic knowledge, most countries reverted to nationalistic and protectionist policies and shut their doors to imports. And um, the British imperial preference system came into being the so-called Smoot-Hawley tariff in the United States, impossibly high tariff barriers so nobody could sell into the American market. And the British Commonwealth countries all banded together and made things very difficult for anybody to sell into the, all the nations still in the British Commonwealth. So it's a global phenomenon. Countries make different responses to it. Um, the two countries, as I say, with, that were most affected were Germany and the United States. Germany comes out of the Depression earlier it reaches pre-1930 employment levels by the mid-1930s, not least of all because Hitler goes into a massive rearmament program which employs people. The other country whose behavior going into the 1940s is deeply affected by the Depression is Japan. Japan thought it had to seek new markets because global markets had shut down, so it invades Manchuria in the 1930 and then eventually China itself a few years later. Uh, those behaviors, those acts of Japanese aggression are pretty direct consequences of the economic cost imposed on Japan by global shutdown of markets in the Depression. So, yes, it's, it's a global international phenomenon, and you have to understand it that way. And there's, there's a direct link between the aggressiveness of the Nazi regime in Germany and the military regime in Japan and the impact of the Depression on their family, on their countries. So you said that Germany comes out of the Depression sooner, but what ends it in America? And a related question from Lene Kay on Instagram. When was it really over? Well, again, if we use the usual metric, which is unemployment, that's the sort of the best rough and ready way to think about the beginning of the Depression, the scale of the Depression, and then the end of it. And it ends in the United States only in 1941, which happens also to be the year in which the United States entered World War II. <laughs> And those facts are not unrelated, that it was the massive, massive American federal government spending on war material and mobilization for the war that finally puts paid to the Depression. So as, as late as um, the end of 1940, early 1941, the unemployment rate was still around 15, 16, 17 percent. By 1942, it's about 3 percent. By 1943, it's invisible. So this, the, the, the New Deal for all of the um, resonance it has in our national mythology, the New Deal did some things of lasting consequence in American life, but it did not end the Great Depression. World War II put an end to the Depression in a very dramatic fashion. And it did so by demonstrating the power 
of deficit spending, of government borrowing in order to stimulate the economy. Um, the, the biggest New Deal deficit was about $6 billion in fiscal year 1936. The federal deficits in 1943 and 1944 were in the range of $70 and $80 billion. Deficit spending on a scale that was just literally unimaginable in the 1930s. Even people like Franklin Roosevelt could not imagine that it would be politically possible or economically feasible to do deficit spending on that scale. World War I compelled that to happen and demonstrated just how powerful a stimulus that could be. So you've talked about the role of war, and we have an interesting question from MHFQ on Instagram, which is, what could have brought the United States out of the Great Depression apart from war? Well, what could have worked sooner is what worked in the UK and elsewhere, uh, is more deficit spending on the part of the federal government. Um, a whole range of other New Deal reforms stabilized markets. Um, I mentioned those earlier, Securities and Exchange Commission, Federal Housing Authority, and so on, made a lot of economic activity less risky. And it was on the scaffolding of those institutions that the post-war economy grew like crazy. But what was lacking was a, a better stimulus, better impetus to spending and investing. And that could have, uh, it would have been, as the war demonstrated, had it been done on a proper scale, uh, almost certainly would have had the desired effect. But to repeat, few of any people could literally could not imagine that spending on that scale was either economically sensible or politically feasible. And let's, let's not forget that the great economist, John Maynard Keynes, did not write his great book that demonstrated the logic of all this, but that book wasn't published till 1936, and it did not immediately get a receptive audience. It took well, quite a while for economists to agree that, yes, this was a legitimate way to think about how fiscal policy could be a proper economic tool or political tool. And for our final question in today's episode, what do you think is the biggest consequence of the Great Depression? Well, in the American context, it seems to me unarguable that the greatest consequence of the Depression was the, the response to it by the Roosevelt administration and the reforms the New Deal put in place. They took a lot of the risk out of lending in various ways and out of old age, out of unemployment, to repeat what I said earlier. And they made possible, they created a matrix, you might say, of new institutions that didn't exist before on which the American economy grew like you pick your metaphor, grew, grew lustily uh, in the post-war quarter century from roughly 1945 down to about 1970. And indeed, the global economy in a lot of countries, those are sometimes called the golden years of the French and British and Italian and German economies um, and Japanese and Korean, for that matter. Uh, a lot of that had to do with, both with, in the United States with reforms that come out of the New Deal and globally with reforms that came out of World War II, which were modeled on and inspired by a lot of New Deal reforms. I'm thinking of things like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which eventually becomes the World Trade Organization. All these are institutional developments that come out of this period that made possible robust economic growth. Uh, in the advanced industrial world and eventually many other parts of the world as well. That was David M. Kennedy, Emeritus Professor of History at Stanford University. His books include Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.